Today marked the state funeral for Queen Elizabeth II as mourners lined the streets of London and watched on television. It's a historical moment in English history and uh, I didn't want to miss it. It is Monday, September 19th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Sharon Brody, in for Lisa Mullins. Public health experts are disputing President Biden's statement that the pandemic is over. If the president is saying 3,000 deaths per week are acceptable, I would ask the president, can't we imagine better? Can't America do better? And a Boston-based duo wants to make you move. The first time I set my eyes on you, I'm like, yeah, I slid in your DM, I was like, hey, took you three days to reply, from backyard parties to DJing for a mayor, the inspiration behind the music of Super Smash Bros. It's 401 now. This news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Hurricane Fiona is moving into the Atlantic, but its torrential rains threaten more floods, mudslides, and long-lasting damage in areas that depend heavily on tourism dollars. It slammed into the Dominican Republic this morning. In the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico, more than a million people are still without power a day after Fiona made landfall there as a Category 1 storm. NPR's Adrian Florida reports the governor says the island still endured heavy losses. It's still hard to say how many towns across Puerto Rico suffered serious or even catastrophic damage from Fiona. I came to the town of Salinas on the island's southern coast near where the hurricane made landfall over the weekend. Flooding here was so bad that hundreds of people had to be rescued overnight. I spoke with a woman whose house had actually been destroyed during Hurricane Maria five years ago because of the winds and the flooding. She and her husband rebuilt the house and put it up on a raised platform that they were sure it was going to protect it from future floods, but Fiona proved her wrong. NPR's Adrian Florido reporting. Roughly 30 inches of rain fell in some parts of Puerto Rico, leaving some people experiencing what felt like post-traumatic stress disorder. In San Juan, that's how Cynthia Burgos Lopez, whose community development group La Maraña, describes it. We're working right now with a community of fishermen that lost their villa due to Maria, and still, five years later, they haven't been able to build it back. So still uh, working with recovery processes from Maria, and now we are in here <laughs> again. And it's emotionally, it has been like PTSD full <laughs> all over. Burgos lost electricity and running water as well, but she says she's doing fine compared to friends in other parts of the island where neighborhoods will have to rebuild again. The United Kingdom came to a standstill as a hearse carrying Queen Elizabeth II's coffin made its way to Windsor Castle 11 days after Britain's longest-serving monarch died. A majestic funeral procession steeped in tradition among the many thousands gathered at Windsor Castle to say goodbye to the Queen were members of the British military. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley has more. Veteran William Frederick has come to Windsor to pay his respects to the Queen. He has a line of military medals across his chest, all with the Queen's profile on them. Yeah, we're going to do Afghanistan and Iraq. Frederick is from the island of Fiji, a member of the British Commonwealth. I'm a veteran of the British forces. It's a very important day for me because I left Fiji because of Her Majesty the Queen. I came and joined the British forces. Frederick says he's aware of the conversation about some countries leaving the British Commonwealth with the Queen's passing, but he says being part of it has always been a good thing for Fiji. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Windsor. From Washington, this is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. There is a confirmed case of monkeypox in the Boston public school system. WBUR's Carrie Young reports the infected person has been identified only as an adult member of the school community. District officials didn't specify which school was impacted or whether the patient was a staff member. That person is isolating at home, and Mayor Michelle Wu says the Boston Public Health Commission is monitoring the situation closely. There was limited exposure, and out of an abundance of precaution, vaccines have been uh, administered and are distributed to anyone who might have even been a little bit in contact there. The impacted school has been cleaned and disinfected. According to the Boston Public Health Commission, monkeypox spreads mostly through close, sustained contact. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Rising sea levels will cause increased flooding, erosion, and storm damage across the southern coast of Massachusetts. That is according to a new report from the nonprofit group Trustees of Reservations. The report says sea levels in New Bedford, Fall River, and other south coast communities could rise over two feet by the year 2050. Some towns could see daily flooding at high tide. Low-income residents in low-lying neighborhoods are most at risk. The report also says salt marshes are sinking, and the report predicts 23 percent of salt marshes on the south coast will vanish by 2050. A Winthrop woman is facing charges in connection with the racist harassment of her neighbors. Angela Foley was arraigned today and pleaded not guilty. She's accused of shouting slurs and setting up a homemade device designed to puncture one of her neighbor's tires. Today, a judge released her on personal recognizance and ordered her to stay away from the victims. It's 63 degrees in Boston, some showers and thunderstorms tonight with lows in the low 60s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, a chance of showers, highs in the mid-60s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Institute for Learning in Retirement. Peer-led courses, speakers, and more. Apply now for 2023. The Harvard Institute for Learning in Retirement. And LifeLock by Norton. Working to help consumers protect themselves against identity theft. Learn more at lifelock.com NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The coffin of Queen Elizabeth II, who inherited the British throne in 1952, was lowered into its final resting place today. Before that, a state funeral, the culmination of 10 days of mourning since the Queen's death on September 8th. Let us give thanks to God for Queen Elizabeth's long life and reign recalling with gratitude her gifts of wisdom, diligence, and service. Reverend Ian Greenshields, moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, one of the speakers this morning at a ceremony at Westminster Abbey. Then thousands upon thousands of people lined the streets for a long procession through and out of London. After that, a smaller service filled with royal rituals at St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle. Today, everyday Britons reacted to the Queen's funeral. It's very calm, it's very moving, and the crown, the Queen's crown, is sitting on the coffin. It's absolutely beautiful, and it just touches your heart. We know it's real, but when you see a coffin in there, it comes home. It'll be a long time before we experience anything like this again in our lives. It's a moment in, in our country's history, and it's important to experience it. 
In the final public ceremony, King Charles, the royal family, clergy members, and others in attendance concluded in song, God Save the Queen. NPR's London correspondent Frank Langfitt joins us now. Hi, Frank. Hi, Juana. So, Frank, what has the atmosphere been like in London? I mean, it's definitely been sad, but I also think a lot of people came down for a sense of history, and they just wanted to see this for themselves and and maybe in some cases to say goodbye. Uh, People were gathering hours along the route uh, around Buckingham Palace and even Hyde Park. A woman named Wendy Preeti, she was in Hyde Park, sitting on a Union flag, watching the funeral on a giant screen, and this is what she had to say. I love the Queen, and I just think no one does pomp and ceremony like the British, and it's just been absolutely wonderful, and I wanted to experience it here with everybody else. And Frank, what else have you been hearing from people? Well, you know, there are also a lot of, got to remember, this is a very big city and there are a lot of people who are not watching it. They're not coming out to see it. And today was a bank holiday. So people simply took advantage of that. It's a guy named Max Lehman. He's a teacher in his mid-20s here in London. And he was also in Hyde Park. But he was actually sitting behind the giant screens that were showing the funeral. He wasn't even watching it. And he was having a picnic with some friends here in London and out of town. And uh, he said he just wasn't that interested. This is how he put it. I'm not a massive royalist and had this picnic planned with my lovely Australian friends and George. So I was planning stuff for this instead of watching that because I know it sounds really brutal, but it's honest. um, Hasn't really and isn't probably going to affect my future. And I'm going to give you another example, Juana, because I think everyone I talk to respects the Queen, but they have different approaches to the monarchy for sure. And I can think of two friends. One is lives near my neighborhood. He's a white man, a patriotic. He went out and stood for 13 hours in line to see the Queen's coffin in the Houses of Parliament. Another is a woman that I know who's originally from India and when I was looking on Facebook saw that she was in Greece just taking advantage of the bank holiday and posting photos of eating on the beach. And I said, not here for this. And she wrote, I'm from the colonies. Okay. So, Frank, I understand the Queen's coffin will be placed in the royal vault. What else do we know about her final resting place at Windsor Castle? Well, her final resting place will be with Prince Philip, her husband, uh, who died last year. And she'll be in the same chapel with her father, King George VI, and her mother and sister. And so, in a way... All these years later, that family, that original royal family, will be united um, in St. George's Chapel uh, in Windsor Castle. Today's state funeral in Westminster Abbey drew dignitaries from around the world. The royal family was there. Can you tell us a bit more about the service? Sure. It was a, it was very much an Anglican a Church of England service. There was a lot of hymns, a lot of readings. One of them was made by the new prime minister, Liz Truss. And I want to mention that, you know, she's the 15th prime minister to work, albeit very briefly, with this queen, the first prime minister, of course, being Winston Churchill. And Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, he did give a sermon. A couple of things were interesting there, Juana. He focused not only on her service, the queen's service to the people, which is kind of a hallmark of her reign, but also talked about King Charles III following in his mother's kind of footsteps and with that great emphasis. And I, I read into that a desire to try to kind of connect him to her legacy. And what comes next for King Charles now that he has acceded to the throne? 
Well, I can't say exactly right now, but there will be a coronation and it'll be next year. And I think that will be the next big event. But I also think that he faces a challenge. He's, you know, a lot less popular than his mother and less popular than the monarchy. So he has his work cut out for him. If you talk to a lot of young people here and you look at polls, they're 50-50 on the monarchy. Mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of whether they think it should remain or whether they should keep it going. And that's a challenge to the institution over time. That was NPR's London correspondent, Frank Langfitt. Frank, thank you. Great to talk, Juana. Not long ago, Ohio was considered a swing state. These days, it is pretty red. President Trump won it by eight points in 2020, and he went there this weekend to stump for the Republican in Ohio's Senate race. Radical left Democrats, you're going to send J.D. Vance to the U.S. Senate. Race is looking very close as Election Day approaches, and a big part of that is women voters, many of them energized by the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben has this report. Brittany Kester has undergone one hell of a political evolution. She voted for Trump in 2016, but soon soured on him and started staunchly supporting Democrats. That fervor has grown. This year, she says she's more politically active than ever, and it was the overturn of Roe that did it. I was like, we, we got to do something. Like, what are we going to do? And so I got involved uh, with certain you know, campaigns or just really in general. And I've been out twice knocking on doors and talking to people and reminding them to vote. Kester is a busy woman. She spoke to me from her car on the job as a rep for lighting manufacturers. She has also been volunteering with Red Wine and Blue, a group of suburban women supporting Democrats, in particular by engaging family and friends. Kester has been talking about reproductive rights to her family. When Tim Ryan came to town, I got my mom and my Republican dad to go. (laughs) My dad hugged uh, Tim Ryan. My dad hugged him. And she says her dad will be voting for Ryan, the Democrat in Ohio's Senate race. Polls have shown a substantial gender gap with women favoring Ryan. Tom Bonnier is a Democratic strategist and CEO of polling and data firm TargetSmart. He has found that in several states, including Ohio, women's voter registration has spiked since the Dobbs decision. Ohio's fascinating because before the Dobbs decision, men were actually out registering women by a very narrow margin. Since Dobbs, that's flipped entirely so that now women are out-registering men by an 11-point margin. So about a 12-point flip, which puts Ohio among the top states of biggest gender gaps since the Dobbs decision. Bonnier says his modeling shows the surge to be disproportionately Democratic. David Cohen, professor of political science at Akron State University, says there are several reasons this race is close. For example, Republican candidate J.D. Vance is inexperienced and has been out-fundraised by Ryan. But, he adds, Dobbs is definitely playing a role. There is an energy there that is not normally there in a midterm election for the president's party. And, and Dobbs has been a real focusing event for Democrats. Vance mostly opposes abortion rights, but told NPR that he supports, quote, reasonable exceptions. Ryan, meanwhile, supports abortion rights, telling NPR that codifying Roe would be a good policy. That said, the economy is at the center of Ryan's campaign. Even when I asked him about abortion, he linked it to business concerns. We're trying to get young people to move here and talent to move here. To have medieval women's right laws in the country, I think, is very detrimental to the economic well-being of the state as well. Katie Paris is founder of Red Wine and Blue, the group that Brittany Kester volunteers with. 
The women she talks to understand Ryan's focus on the economy over abortion rights. They know what they need to know. People also know that in Ohio, to win, you got to do what Sherrod Brown does, and that's do well everywhere. And that includes doing better than most Democrats have done lately in rural Ohio. It's true that reproductive rights aren't top of mind for all voters, including women. Polling has suggested women support abortion rights only modestly more than men, not overwhelmingly so. And that's what Vance is counting on. Women aren't single-issue voters, right? I mean, I think women care about a lot of things that men care about, which is security, inflation, crime, a whole other things on, a lot of other things on top of it. I spoke to Vance at the Morgan County Fair in southeastern Ohio. That's also where I met Lainala Porter, a 19-year-old waitress. I asked if she had heard much about J.D. Vance or Tim Ryan. Nope. <laughs> this will be her first election. She plans to vote, though she hasn't registered. I have not, not yet. She's a woman of few words, but one topic where she did have a lot to say is abortion. I'm pro-choice in a large way. It just doesn't seem very fair to make a woman pay for and have a child when she just isn't ready or if it can potentially kill her. And it's voters like her that could put Ryan over the top. New voters who aren't paying a lot of attention, but who do care about reproductive rights. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 418 and coming up on All Things Considered, you'll hear that building affordable housing on church land could help alleviate the housing crisis in California, but accomplishing that could be easier said than done. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Southern New Hampshire University, offering over 100 master's degrees online and on campus. Next term starts soon, snhu.edu. And Boston Ballet's My Obsession, with Stephen Galloway's Devil's Eye, set to music by the Rolling Stones, October 6th to 16th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. In business news, the medical imaging software company Intellirad is acquiring Newton-based competitor LifeImage. The addition of LifeImage allows Intellirad to expand the size of its imaging exchange network. The company says it wants to improve the process to transfer medical images and move away from the use of CDs in that process. On Wall Street, stocks closed higher today. The Dow ended the day at 31,019, up 197 points. The Nasdaq closed up 86 points at 11,535. The S&P 500 closed at 38.99, up 26 points. Marketplace has a full range of business news at 6.30 here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at xfinity.com gig. And Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine. It is 63 degrees in Boston. Some showers and thunderstorms likely tonight. Lows in the low 60s. A mostly cloudy Tuesday. A chance of some showers tomorrow and temperatures in the mid-60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. 
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com and from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The most recent inflation numbers released were higher than expected. We have heard a lot of reasons for why inflation remains so stubbornly high, including the supply chain, the pandemic, war in Ukraine. Well, some Democrats, among them President Biden, point to one more factor as a contributor, record corporate profits. Here's the president speaking earlier this year. While families struggle to pay their bills, some corporate corporate executives are on earnings calls with investors on Wall Street cheering their record profits and explain how they're using this period of inflation to cover the rise in prices far beyond what they need to do to cover their costs. Well, this got us wanting to take a closer look at corporate profits. So to do that, I am joined by Lindsay Owens. She is executive director of the Groundwork Collaborative, a group that, among other things, tracks corporate earnings. Lindsay Owens, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks so much for having me. So I gather uh, your group, the Groundwork Collaborative, joins these calls that we just heard President Biden mention there, calls that companies hold with their investors. What have you been hearing recently as you listen in? Yeah, so we listen in on these calls and we also read through the transcripts, which are publicly available um, to anyone who wants to look them up. And what we hear over and over again is CEOs talking about the fact that they're able to raise prices beyond the level that they need to cover their rising input costs. Give me an example or two of companies that are that are raising their, their prices and making unusually high profits right now. Yeah, we're seeing it really um, quite widely. H.B. Fuller, a large adhesive company, you know, the CEO recently told an analyst that he's getting a little bit of savings as some of these costs in the economy are declining, but he's not passing any of that back along to the consumer. So he says, we don't reduce prices. Help me understand what's going on here, because the companies you're you're talking about, these are for-profit companies, and for-profit companies, as the name suggests, are trying to make a profit. They are generally allowed to do so in a free market. What makes this moment unusual, do you think? What we're seeing right now, though, is companies really exploiting this moment of crisis, and they're really taking advantage of this moment to go higher than they need to on markups and on profits. And I think there's just a really important question we should be asking. You know, 38 states currently have price gouging laws on the books. Those laws say things like, you know, you can't sell bottled water for $100 a gallon after a hurricane. And I think this moment, this really unprecedented moment in our economy um, begs the question of whether it's time for maybe a federal price gouging statute um, to prevent against some of this egregious profiteering during moments of real economic hardship and crisis. Although, isn't the market supposed to correct for this? Isn't the market supposed to handle this? If a company prices things too high, um, their customers will go elsewhere to buy things and, and that company's competitors went out. Yes, absolutely. In theory, this type of profiteering 
wouldn't really be possible, right? A competitor would come in, undercut one of the big players, um, and drive prices down. But what we're seeing in this moment is that the companies with the biggest market share, with the most market power, the most pricing power, are the ones who are really engaging in the most egregious profiteering. Lindsay Owens, she's executive director of the Groundwork Collaborative. Thank you. Thanks for having me. There is a desperate need for affordable housing in California. Churches have the space to build, but many economic hurdles stand in the way of congregations trying to live out their mission to house the most vulnerable. From member station KQED in San Francisco, Aditi Bunlamudi reports. Late last year, Ira Hudson was searching for an affordable place to live in the Bay Area. She had been living in an apartment in downtown Oakland for almost a decade, but when the building's management changed, it became run down. They were just starting to let any and everybody come in there. Some new neighbors moved in next door and didn't keep their space clean. And then and I couldn't stand the bugs. Hudson is retired and lives off of her Social Security benefits, so she didn't have a lot of options. On a whim, she submitted an application to a new low-income apartment building for seniors in Berkeley. Out of the blue. I got a call and said, you got an apartment here. I said, you got to be kidding. She moved into Jordan Court in March and loves her new home. We got uh, mint and we got cucumber. We got the chives, uh, the swift chive. And We're sitting in the shared garden where Hudson loves to pick fresh vegetables for dinner. Neighbors are great. They don't bug you, you know, and then sometimes we sit out here and just talk. Jordan Court was built by All Souls Episcopal Church, located next door. It all started eight years ago when the congregation decided to transform an unused apartment building into new low-income housing. According to Reverend Phil Burchard, the church faced the usual challenges, funding, bureaucracy, and pushback from neighbors. For some, it was uh, they didn't want to see a bigger structure here. Uh, for some, it was just they didn't want uh, poor people living in their quote-unquote neighborhood. Obstacles like these can prevent many housing developments, and churches don't often know how to navigate them. But All Souls had a few things going for it. New housing laws streamlined the approval process. It's a big church in an affluent neighborhood. They didn't need to make a profit. They wanted to serve the community. We had a number of people who gave up thousands of hours to this project from our congregation who came in with different skill sets, a journalist and an attorney and a um, couple of architects. Jordan Court succeeded because it had considerable human and financial resources to start with. But the situation is different for many black churches in the Bay Area. They're often less affluent and the high cost of housing is actively displacing their congregants. Church attendance is down, so is your offering plate. So we had to think about how do churches survive? Repurposing your land into housing became significant. That's Pastor L.J. Jennings. He runs the Kingdom Builders Christian Fellowship Church in Oakland and has built two transitional housing facilities for people who had been homeless. It would take up this space all in here, all parking lot right now. And so it, we we're in Hayward, a small city south of Oakland, where Jennings wants to build low-income housing in another church's parking lot. We proposed building uh, in terms of what we can put together is 42 units total. Jennings was born and raised in this area and has seen his neighbors get forced out. Before becoming a pastor, he worked in real estate. So in 2019, he decided to use his experience to tackle the problem. He started the Kingdom Builders Project, 
a nonprofit that helps churches build affordable housing in their backyards. It was important for us to think about how do we as the faith community uh, attack this issue and attack the crises of losing members that are being pushed out. His goal is not only to build housing, but to help the churches building it make money so they can stay in the community themselves. The congregation could learn how to run the property and could provide supportive housing services that would otherwise be contracted out, daycare for the children of tenants, or financial literacy classes. We're really trying to stem the tide of the black displacement. In a real sense, it's our survival. No one's going to save us but us. Jennings believes it's the mission of black churches to serve their neighbors, and in so doing, bring new life to their communities as a whole. For NPR News, I'm Aditi Bandlamudi in San Francisco. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 429 and ahead on All Things Considered, all aboard once again. The Orange Line and a section of the Green Line have reopened after a month-long closure for repairs and upgrades. We'll hear from MBTA writers. It is 63 degrees in Boston tonight, some showers and thunderstorms likely, mostly cloudy tomorrow, a chance of showers and Tuesday's highs reaching the mid-60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by JBS Home Inspections with condo common area consultations as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston. JBSinspections.com And the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. More at themusicemporium.com Fed is trying to engineer a soft landing for the economy. But what does that look like? What we're trying to do with the economy is similar to, in this metaphorical way, trying to guide a lunar capsule to the surface of the moon. I'm Amy Scott, shooting for the moon, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. American contractor Mark Frerichs is on his way home from Afghanistan after a more than two-year hostage ordeal. In exchange, the U.S. released a convicted drug trafficker linked to the Taliban, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman tells us. U.S. officials say Mark Frerichs is in stable health, traveling with the U.S. presidential envoy on hostage affairs. His sister says he's happy her brother is safe. The 60-year-old Navy veteran was detained in January 2020 and was believed to have been held by the Haqqani Network. President Biden says Frerichs' freedom required difficult decisions, which he says he did not take lightly. Biden granted clemency to Bashir Norzai, who spent 17 years in U.S. custody on drug trafficking charges. Biden says he's made it a priority to get wrongfully detained Americans home. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the United Nations. In Germany, inflation could reach into the double digits in the coming months, and the central bank there says the German economy is on track for a recession next year. This comes as Russia cuts gas supplies to Germany and much of the EU amid its ongoing war with Ukraine. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports from Berlin. 
The Bundesbank said unfavorable developments in the gas market would put pressure on German manufacturers, with signs of an impending recession inside Europe's largest economy becoming hard to ignore. As Russia cuts gas deliveries to Germany, the country is scrambling to replace natural gas and paying extra to import both gas and coal from outside of Europe. Bank economists predict that Germany's GDP will decline in the final quarter of this year and the first quarter of 2023. NPR's Rob Schmitz. Much like the U.S., Germany's inflation rate was nearly 8 percent last month. Germany's central bank is worried that actions by the Fed and other central banks might overshoot their policy targets, triggering a recession next year. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street. This is NPR. A new report finds throughout the last school year more than 1,600 book titles were banned. NPR's Andrew Limbong tells us the Freedom of Expression Advocacy Group says a network of local and national political groups are behind the push to ban the books. According to the report, right-leaning groups such as Moms for Liberty have pushed schools and libraries to pull a number of books from their shelves or restrict them from their readership in some way. For the most part, the books being targeted either feature queer characters and storylines or prominently feature characters of color. These are books like the graphic memoir Gender Queer by Maya Kobabe, Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, and All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. In a statement, Suzanne Nossel, chief executive officer at PEN America, said the rise in censorship casts a, quote, chill over the spirit of open inquiry and intellectual freedom that underpin a flourishing democracy. Andrew Limbong, NPR News. In a country known for pomp and pageantry, Britain bid a final goodbye to Queen Elizabeth II at a state funeral today in London. Just ahead of the service, a bell tolled 96 times, one for each year of Elizabeth's life. This was Britain's first state funeral since the passing of Prime Minister Winston Churchill 57 years ago. Today's service drew presidents, kings, princes, and prime ministers to honor the queen, whose 70-year reign is the longest of any British monarch. I'm Dwayne Brown. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The New Bedford hurricane barrier was a marvel of engineering when it was built in 1966. And the Seagate still does a good job protecting the port from storms. But a new report from a Massachusetts environmental nonprofit says that rising sea levels are giving the old barrier some new problems. WBUR's Barbara Moran has more. The more than 50-year-old barrier protects the most prosperous fishing port in the country. The Seagate keeps the water in the harbor at a steady level that prevents infrastructure from flooding. When a storm threatens, the Army Corps of Engineers closes the gates 26 times in 2019. But that's going to change as sea levels rise, says Cynthia Dittbrenner of the Trustees of Reservations. As soon as 2050, they may need to close it once to twice a day on the high tide. So that's clearly not doable for a working port. It's not sustainable. One solution? Make infrastructure in the harbor more resilient to flooding, either by raising, moving, or replacing it. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. The Republican nominee for Massachusetts Governor, Jeff Deal, now says he will not challenge election results in any way other than through the official legal process. That's after his campaign refused to comment when The New York Times asked whether Deal would accept the results of the gubernatorial election. In a new statement, Deal does say he is worried a state law to allow undocumented immigrants to get driver's licenses could make it easier for non-citizens to illegally vote. However, 
That law would not go into effect until after November's election. Deal says it is ridiculous to ask any candidate to waive the right to challenge an election that has not happened yet. Five Massachusetts police officers are the latest recipients of the Carnegie Medal. The five state and Worcester officers will receive the medal for the rescue of three teens in a Worcester pond in the summer of 2021. During the incident, one teenager and Worcester officer Emanuel Familia drowned. The prize announced today is awarded by the nonprofit Carnegie Hero Fund Commission for Acts of Heroism. It's 436. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. It is 63 degrees in Boston. Showers and thunderstorms likely tonight. Lows overnight in the low 60s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with chance of showers and highs in the mid-60s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Clavio, seeking to help e-commerce brands build customer relationships and drive revenue through email and SMS. Learn more at klaviyo.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Since the earliest days of the pandemic, many of us have wondered, what's the end game? Where are we in the arc of this thing? When will the pandemic be over? Well, President Biden had his own answer to that question over the weekend. Here he is responding to Scott Pelley on CBS's 60 Minutes. Is the pandemic over? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. But is it? Here to fact check the president is NPR health correspondent Rob Stein. Hey, Rob. Hey, Mary Louise. So I would so love for President Biden to be right on this, but what, what kind of reaction are you hearing to the president's statement? Yeah, I think we all would love that to be the case. But the president's declaration of an end of the pandemic definitely caught a lot of people off guard, including, I'm told, even people inside the White House. And as you might guess, it sparked a lot of debate outside 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Some agree with the president. They say the president is just acknowledging the obvious. You know, the number of people getting really sick or dying has plummeted. We have lots of tests and effective vaccines and treatments to keep it that way. And life has pretty much returned to normal for most people, COVID is no longer dominating their lives. Here's Dr. Thomas Frieden. He's a former director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I agree with the president. We have a new disease, a new health risk that's COVID. It's unpredictable. It's killing people. And yes, we need to do much more to control it and much more to care for people. But the pandemic as a phenomenon that ruled our lives for two years, that's past. But others say the president's comments are way off base. Okay, tease that one out for me. The people who think he's way off base, why? They say, look, hundreds of people are still dying every day, which makes it a major continuing public health threat. Here's Dr. Celine Gounder. She's a senior fellow at the Kaiser Family Foundation who has advised the administration on the pandemic. 
If by saying the pandemic is over, the president is saying that 3,000 deaths per week or 150,000 deaths per year are acceptable and that some lives matter less than others, namely the elderly, the immunocompromised and communities of color, that our new normal is that we've grown numb to these deaths. Well, I would ask the president, can't we imagine better? Can't America do better? Gounder and others suspect the president's comments are aimed more at helping Democrats win the midterm elections than protecting public health and comes at a particularly perilous moment for the country. Particularly perilous, you said. Why? Yeah. Well, you know, for one thing, the administration just launched what's looking like a uphill battle to convince pandemic-weary Americans to once again roll up their sleeves to get new boosters designed to protect them through a third pandemic winter when the virus could very well surge again. Here's Dr. Carlos Del Rio from Emory University. I think that it's an unfortunate comment because it's really important that we get people boosted with a new booster this fall. And when you hear a message saying the pandemic is over, that's going to make it very hard to get people boosted, because then why would you get boosted if we're already done with this pandemic? And why would Congress agree to the administration's request to spend billions of dollars more to make sure plenty of tests, treatments, and vaccines remain widely available? You know, all this has me thinking, Rob, whose job it is anyway to declare the pandemic over or not over. Can the president even do that? The short answer is no, not really. The World Health Organization has declared the pandemic a public health emergency of international concern. And while the WHO is saying the world may be getting close to ending that, we're definitely not there yet. Also, the U.S. has declared the pandemic a public health emergency, and federal officials have signaled they're not ready to end that either. Many public health experts are urging the administration to keep it going because it provides crucial powers needed to keep up the fight, keep up the fight against the virus. All right, keeping up the fight for us and PR Health Correspondent <laughs> Rob Stein. Thank you, Rob. You're welcome, Mary Louise. The state funeral of Queen Elizabeth II brought Britain to a standstill today. It took place in Westminster Abbey in London, and it resonated around the entire nation. NPR's Philip Reeves has been connecting, collecting reactions from people in the northeastern city of Newcastle. I know everybody's got to go sometime. She'd reached a fair old age of 96 but still not having it here just isn't a comfort. Robert Galloway is a retired British soldier. The Queen used to be his commander-in-chief, yet his loyalty to her is more personal than that. Galloway says she was... Everything. Everything. She's all I've ever known. My dad died four and five years ago. My grandparents died a long, long time ago. So the only thing I ever really knew over and above that was a queen, so she was that matriarch of a family life. We're in a public square in the centre of the port city of Newcastle. This place is nearly 300 miles from Westminster Abbey in London. Pigeons swirl overhead. A small crowd stands in silence, watching the Queen's funeral on a big outdoor screen. Galloway felt he needed to be here today. Basically, ever since she's died, I've just been stuck indoors. Um, just from my thoughts, just with the memories, just seeing everything about the Queen. And I just think that today's the day for it to come out into the fresh air. Tens of millions of people across Britain put their lives on hold to watch their Queen's state funeral. History runs deep in this country, especially in Newcastle. The royals have owned land up here for centuries. Christopher James is 62 and is from Newcastle. 
He's wearing military medals earned years ago as a gunner with the Royal Air Force Regiment in Northern Ireland and Central America. His commitment to Queen Elizabeth began on the day he signed up, he says. You don't take the oath unless you're willing to, you know, die for it. I was willing to die at the age of 18 for a person I'd never met, but a person that I respected, a person that my family respected, you know, and that still stands today. If the king turned around tomorrow and said, we need your help, most of the people who gave that oath will turn around and help, because that oath means a lot to them. The crowd watches the screen in silence as the Queen's coffin is carried in a slow procession out of Westminster Abbey. Some Britons aren't impressed by these images. They oppose the monarchy or question its scale, especially the young. People worry about the cost of all this pomp and pageantry, says Tom Rogers, who's 32. Especially with what's going on at the moment in terms of the cost of living crisis, I think there are people that would say that, yes. Yet his admiration for the Queen remains intact. Yeah, I do believe that she symbolised unity in this country. She served for a long time, yeah. And they say the best leaders are the ones that don't want to do it, so I think that's what made her a good leader. Most Britons won't forget today's events. Some compare this with Winston Churchill's state funeral nearly 60 years ago. Yet this day, this collective farewell to the Queen, also came as a relief, says Meghan Montgomery, who's in the square among the crowd. She's 25 and comes from Belfast in Northern Ireland. It gives a bit of closure for everyone. Obviously because, you know, after she died and it's been 10 days since. So it's been a long process, it feels, you know. So it's, it's nice for it to come to a close in a nice way that everyone can chart together. Philip Reeves, NPR News, Newcastle. listening to All Things Considered from NPR. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Sharon Brody, and for Lisa Mullins, the Orange Line and the northern part of the Green Line are back in service today after a month-long shutdown, and many riders are getting back into their normal routines. This morning, WBUR's Simone Rios was out talking to riders and singers. De pronto se una puerta. At least one Orange Line passenger was in good spirits this morning, inspired to sing a merengue before he got off at his stop. Another happy rider, Tom Dunn, was about to get on the line with his baby son, Henry. Hopefully the uh, the Orange Line will continue working as good as it did on a good day before, (laughs) is what I'm expecting. Henry, what do you think about the Orange Line? We've been telling everyone the Orange Line's broken, but now we can tell everyone that Orange Line, people fixed it, right? broken. <laughs> Tom corrected Henry to say the line is actually fixed. The unprecedented shutdown of the T allowed workers to complete what officials describe as five years of work in a single month. The T also shut down the Union Square branch of the Green Line for nearly a month until today. Leslie Good rides the Orange Line most weekdays, and she was dubious the T could fix the line so quickly. But on her first day back on the tee, she said things were going smoother than expected. I'm surprisingly relieved because I, I have felt the past month really exhausting. You know, I'm young and healthy, but even taking three legs to get to work. And so by the time I get to work, I feel a little bit frazzled and it's always looming over me to get home. 
State officials listed all the work they accomplished over the course of the shutdown, including the addition of 72 new cars and 14,000 feet of rail. T-General Manager Steve Poftak acknowledged the closures were inconvenient, but he said he hopes riders like the results. The ride is going to be faster. You're going to get more vehicles. It's going to be a smoother, smoother, more reliable ride. So I'm hopeful to the extent that there are folks who have lost confidence in the T. I'm hopeful that this is, is a step in regaining that confidence. But the T has yet to win back everybody's confidence. One rider who got on at Assembly Square this morning told WBUR the wait times seem to be even worse than before the closure. The T is asking for patience. It says it's running trains more slowly than normal until the new tracks settle. Another fix involved replacing some of the yellow stripping that runs along the edge of the train platforms. Waiting for his train at the Mass Ave stop today was Frank McDonough, who's blind and walks with a cane. He says that yellow stripping is important for people who are visually impaired. Generally, yes. Why is that? So we don't fall off into the pit <laughs> when there's no train there. Now he and the rest of T-Riders will find out whether the month-long shutdown was worth it. And the T plans yet more shutdowns in weeks ahead. That includes three nine-day shutdowns of the Green Line's D-Branch starting Saturday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. The 2022 midterm elections are just seven weeks away, but some local election boards are finding themselves swamped with paperwork regarding the presidential election two years ago. In Ohio and other battleground states, numerous people have filed identical public records requests seeking copies of ballots and absentee voter envelopes from the 2020 election. Ohio Public Radio's Karen Kassler has more. Federal law says documents related to federal elections should be preserved for 22 months after the vote. So just as election boards were poised to get rid of their 2020 documents, requests for them started coming in. At the Warren County Board of Elections in southwest Ohio, Director Brian Sleeth got seven identical requests. We have about 180,000 ballots from the election that they're asking to view. The requests also ask for results tapes from voting machines, which can be 80 feet long, and copies of absentee ballot envelopes with voter identification on them. So then we're stepping into redacting records. Sleet says public records requests are not unusual, but copying all these documents could take days and might have to involve an outside vendor, which could send costs for each request into the thousands of dollars. And for smaller Ohio counties, storing the 2020 documents is difficult. Former President Trump won Ohio by more than 475,000 votes. But boards of elections in all 88 counties have gotten these requests. And it's not just in Ohio. Hundreds of requests for thousands of public records from the 2020 election have flooded boards of elections in battleground states such as Arizona, Nevada, and North Carolina. Election deniers and right-wing activists promote the practice. It's an issue of you writing a letter to your board of elections and requesting it, okay? Longtime Trump supporter and Tea Party leader Tom Zawistowski hosts a podcast from Northeast Ohio. So when I put this on our website, I'll link to the instructions on how to do that. In an email, Zawistowski says he and other activists are following the instructions of MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell. 
Lindell is an ally of former President Trump, who's been leading efforts to ban voting machines he falsely claims contributed to massive fraud in the 2020 election, though there's never been evidence of that in audits or in court cases. Ned Foley is the director of election law at Ohio State University's law school. He says there could be a benefit, even if it's a strain for boards of elections to provide all this information. And maybe giving access to it would ameliorate to some degree the concern about distrust. That won't happen, says Michael McDonald. He's the head of the United States Election Project, which tracks data and information about voting systems. McDonald says activists who believe the baseless stolen election claims are using a loophole in public records law to gum up elections. But McDonald says there is a solution. It's a very easy solution, but it's not going to happen. And that's for Donald Trump to admit that he lost the election fair and square. But for now, elections officials in Ohio and a handful of other states are working to fulfill requests for a huge load of 2020 election documents while they also prepare for this year's midterm contests. Early voting in Ohio is less than a month away. For NPR News, I'm Karen Kassler in Columbus. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 4.53 and ahead on All Things Considered, an installment of the WBUR series The Makers, highlighting artists of color leaving an imprint on Massachusetts. You'll meet the Boston-based duo Super Smash Bros. I'm On Point host Meghna Chakrabarty. WBUR's fall fundraiser begins Thursday morning at 7 with just an hour of fundraising for the entire day. We call it a power hour. Every monthly gift will be doubled until Thursday morning at 8 o'clock. We need 500 contributors for this power hour to be a success, so help us off to a strong start. Give monthly at WBUR.org. It is 63 degrees in Boston, some showers and thunderstorms tonight. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy Tuesday, a chance of showers and highs in the mid-60s. Check out the new Here and Now Anytime podcast. It's the news you need to know today and the stories that will stick with you tomorrow, all in about 20 minutes. Download wherever you get your podcasts. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank, mathworks.com slash gbfb. And the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com slash careers. While the monarchy is not a political institution, the Queen did sort of embody an idea that gives the United Kingdom a real credibility and a real legitimacy in world affairs. So to the extent that that's diminished, I think you see a country that just feels less important on the global stage. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Sharon Brody. Music is its own language. It connects us 
And it can make us move as if we're under a spell. Baby, I know like when you want to Boston-based duo Super Smash Bros. understands the language and power of music. Today we profiled the group for our series that highlights artists of color in Boston. WBUR's Lauren Williams says the duo started off performing at family parties in the backyard. Muyi and Noma Okandaye want to make you dance. The pair hosts parties and DJ for events all over the country, but their love for sharing music with the world came from their dad. When they were kids, he would take them to Skippy White's Records, which used to be in Eggleston Square. You know, you could always buy those like super mixed CDs with a bunch of different songs on it. It was like always the most popping songs. And I still remember that's how I discovered Mario Let Me Love You. And I remember one specific CD was track two on it. That was like, yo, this song's like the greatest song ever. The brothers had music education in school, but their devotion to music came from spending time with family who immigrated from Nigeria. Noma says that whenever the song Lagos Night by Suku Stars would come on at a family party, everybody's legs was going <laughs> insane. That's the energy they want to bring to their work today. Whenever we step into an environment, we always we always bring a new wave and a new energy into the environment. So I would say that's something we definitely do like to look back on and be like, yeah, we had a lit, like we had that, we had a jump in. In June, they DJed for Mayor Wu's inauguration. It was a career highlight for them, but the Super Smash Bros are just getting started. Ten years from now, the two say they want to take their sound global, curating and headlining a festival in Nigeria. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lauren Williams. Our profile is part of our week-long series, The Makers, spotlighting local emerging artists of color. Tomorrow on WBUR's Morning Edition, we'll meet artist Nigel Jones. To see photos and videos of all the people we featured, visit WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the American Lung Association and Pfizer, working together to raise awareness of pneumococcal pneumonia. Information on adult vaccinations for pneumococcal pneumonia is at lung.org slash pneumococcal. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's coming up on 5 o'clock as All Things Considered continues. Coming up, the latest on a U.S. Taliban prisoner exchange, also a report on Ukrainian resourcefulness, that and much more ahead on All Things Considered.
It is 63 degrees in Boston. Some showers and thunderstorms likely tonight. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy. A chance of showers. Tuesday's highs in the mid-60s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. Peer-led courses, speakers, and more. Apply now for 2023. The Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Hurricane Fiona has devastated areas of Puerto Rico. Help is on the way from as far away as New York. These are our citizens, fellow citizens, and that is uh, why we do this mutual aid as we would do if there were, you know, the um, flooding in Kentucky. It is Monday, September 19th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. You'll hear about a big development today in the case that launched the Serial Podcast. Many nations, including Jamaica, still recognize the British monarch as their head of state, but times are changing. Jamaicans have been very, I think resentful is a strong word, but certainly want to be architects of their own destiny. Also, the photographer Penny Wollen discusses her new book, Guest Register. It's 501. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Queen Elizabeth has been laid to rest in St. George's Chapel in Windsor Castle. As NPR's Frank Langford reports from London, the family celebrated ceremony rather included a day of sorrow for many and spectacle for all. There were indelible images and sounds. The Queen's coffin on a gun carriage heading towards Buckingham Palace along a road filled with huge Union flags. A funeral service filled with hymns inside cavernous Westminster Abbey. Wendy Preeti watched it all on a giant screen amid the crowds in London's Hyde Park. Everybody stood up when the the Queen entered the Abbey and after we sang God Save the King. It's just been so moving. It's been lovely. The coronation of King Charles III is expected next year. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. Less than an hour after a nationwide earthquake drill, a real 7.7 magnitude quake hit Mexico. That's based on the assessment by Mexican authorities. NPR's Ader Peralta reports it comes on a historically significant date. At 12.19 local time, the sirens in Mexico City went off. Two of the biggest earthquakes in Mexico's history have hit on September 19th, so the government uses this day for a nationwide earthquake drill. Then, less than an hour after that drill, the ground started shaking and sirens went off, this time for real. The epicenter of the earthquake was in the southwestern tip of the country. There was no major damage immediately reported in Mexico City, but authorities are still assessing damage closer to the epicenter. Ada Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City. Hurricane Fiona, after knocking out power to all of Puerto Rico and causing what is being described as catastrophic damage there, is now hitting the Dominican Republic. In Puerto Rico, there are reports of people being left without water service. It's all the more devastating because Puerto Rico continues to recover from Hurricane Maria that claimed the lives of nearly 3,000 people in 2017. 
The rate of suicide among military veterans has fallen. That's according to the latest data from the VA. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports the rate fell faster than did suicide among civilians. Veterans still have a higher risk of suicide than civilians, but the VA's latest annual report found the suicide rate among vets dropped nearly 10 percent from 2018 to 2020, almost twice the improvement seen in non-veterans. Vets more often use firearms during suicide attempts, and VA credited efforts around safe storage of guns for the reduction. The rate also improved among vets in VA treatment for mental health issues. Still, VA says 17 veterans die by suicide each day. And that number could be as high as 24. An academic study by America's Warrior Partnership found the VA may be significantly undercounting suicide because of incomplete data from state coroners. Will Lawrence, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 197 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Orange Line and a portion of the Green Line are back in service today after they were shut down for a month. The MBTA used the closures to make five years worth of repairs in a shorter period of time. Boston's Chief of Streets, Yasha Franklin Hodge, believes the improvements will be worth it. We obviously hope that there is not ever a need for another shutdown of this magnitude, uh, but this is, I think, in many ways a really good down payment on a future rail that is going to be reliable and uh, fast and deliver on what people need here in Boston. On Saturday, the T will close the Green Line's D branch for nine days for repairs. The D line also will be shut down for two nine-day periods next month. Today, many British expats living in the Boston area mourned the death of Queen Elizabeth from afar. The state funeral for the monarch took place in London today, and some people from Massachusetts were on hand for that event. Boston area resident Anita Gaidetsky was among those visiting London. She says the number of people in the city seems unprecedented. I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen crowds like it, actually. And it has been incredible actually the feelings that you get when you're amongst these crowds and the the general sort of feelings that people have it's just an incredibly emotional and powerful time to be here in boston the british consulate offered a public condolence book for the public to sign following the queen's death this month she was 96 years old There is a confirmed case of monkeypox in the Boston school system involving an adult member of the school community. The district is not saying whether it's a student or a staff member, but does say the affected school was cleaned and disinfected over the weekend. Mayor Michelle Wu says vaccines have been given to everyone who came into close contact with the infected person. The ACLU of Massachusetts is suing for more information about former President Trump's handling of classified documents. The local branch of the free speech organization filed a public records lawsuit today. Officials with the ACLU want more information from federal agencies about Trump's claim the documents he took were set to be declassified. In the forecast, some showers and thunderstorms likely tonight. Tomorrow, a mostly cloudy Tuesday, a chance of showers and highs in the mid-60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a privacy company committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer private search and tracker blocking with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The extent of the devastation wrought by Hurricane Fiona is now becoming clearer across parts of the Caribbean. We are going to focus on Puerto Rico, where very few parts of the island have been spared, starting on the north side of the island. We have mudslides, we have floods, many fallen trees. Right now, the whole community is without electricity, and there's a considerable amount of people without water. That's Marcus Cruz Molina, the mayor of Vega Baja, a small town about 30 miles west of San Juan. Even though his city has dealt with severe hurricane damage before, this time is not proving to be any easier. Well, it's similar to what happened with Hurricane Maria, especially in regards to the flooding. And it's really distressing. Down in Puerto Rico's central mountainous region, some people woke up to streets that looked more like rushing rivers. 25-year-old Fernando Vera lives in the town of Utawado. As he thinks about what recovery could look like this time, he is also haunted by the impact of Hurricane Maria in 2017. That damage forced him and his family out of their home for two months. It was literally like if, as if the mountain exploded and all the, the mountain just laid over the top of the road. When we got notice of Fiona, we decided to stay at our uncle's house. And we're currently worried about the conditions we're going to find our home after all this ends. And rain continues to fall across Puerto Rico, and the streets keep flooding. Again, Vega Baja, Mayor Marcus Cruz Molina. Right now, what we're doing is clearing the streets, investigating the community's needs so that they can be addressed in the most efficient way, and providing food to the most disadvantaged sectors. It's still not clear how many communities across Puerto Rico sustained sustained serious, even catastrophic damage from Hurricane Fiona. Those assessments will take some time. And on the south side of the island, as NPR's Adrian Florido reports, despite forecasts, this hurricane still caught many people off guard. Barrio Playa is a small neighborhood in the town of Salinas on Puerto Rico's southern coast. It's where Yesenia Alvarado and much of her family live. She said people knew Fiona would bring heavy rain, but they did not expect the water levels to rise so high and so fast. Close to midnight last night, when the water started entering people's homes and reaching their waists, people started to panic. They shot emergency flares into the air. Emergency responders rescued more than 200 people here and in surrounding neighborhoods. This afternoon, after the water receded, Alvarado was making the rounds, checking on members of her family. Her cousin Tata wasn't home. Next door, Cano Correa said he and his wife Norma Rosa rode most of the storm out with family in another town. When they returned to their house this morning here in Barrio Playa, they found a sloppy mess. Mira, mira, 
Their whole house was full of water, leaves, and mud. Correa walked to the backyard, a concrete patio surrounded by brick walls. Look, he said, it's like a swimming pool. I don't know how I'm going to get that water out of there. All across Puerto Rico, in coastal towns like this one and in many mountain towns, people are starting to assess just how much destruction Hurricane Fiona wrought with its near-record rainfall. In some places, the floodwaters are starting to recede, but in others, the rain hasn't stopped, and there are still huge threats of flash floods, mudslides, and collapsed bridges. Much of the island is still without power, and some places don't have drinking water. It could be days or longer before those services are restored. Governor Pedro Pierluisi said Monday that officials are still in emergency response. Including here in Salinas, more than a thousand people have been rescued island-wide. Lisbeth Moran and her husband, Doel Santiago, thought for a good long while last night that they would be among those people. And um, so, yeah, it was really, really, it was a really traumatizing experience. It was really bad. She said watching the water level rise from their porch, she started to prepare to escape to their neighbor's house. He has a second story. Hurricane Maria brought stronger winds, her husband said but Fiona brought more rain. One of the reasons it got so bad in this neighborhood, he said, is because the pump that is used to remove stormwater out to the ocean didn't seem to be working last night. Maria destroyed the couple's previous home in 2017. They decided to rebuild, but to make their new house hurricane-proof. It's painted a nice bright blue, it's got sturdy concrete walls, and they raised it onto a concrete platform more than three feet off the ground thinking, you know what, we're going to be safe. We're going to have a good structure for years to come. It doesn't matter if a hurricane hits the island, we're going to be pretty safe. But as of, you know, what we witnessed last night, uh, we don't think so. Moran said that she and her husband had been talking about adding a second story to their home sometime after they retire, years from now. But after Fiona, they're going to start building that second story right away. Adrian Florido, NPR News, Salinas, Puerto Rico. To England now, where Queen Elizabeth II was laid to rest today. The ceremonies began with a state funeral at Westminster Abbey, attended by President Biden and other world leaders. A glass-paneled Jaguar hearse then carried the Queen's coffin outside London to Windsor Castle. Tens of thousands of onlookers stood along the way. The Queen's farewell concluded with a private burial ceremony at St. George's Chapel, which is where we find NPR correspondent Eleanor Beardsley. She is reporting from Windsor, covering all the day's events. Hey, Eleanor. Hi, Mary Louise. All right, so talk to me about the ceremony taking place there at Windsor. Talk to me about why uh, this will be her final resting place at Windsor. Well, some very old rituals for the death of a monarch took place today in full public view on television for the first time because when Elizabeth II's father, George VI, died in 1952, and this went on, no one saw it on television. Um, Today, these instruments of state, as they're being called, the orb, the scepter, and the crown were taken from her coffin and placed on the altar 
officially separated from her. And the Lord Chamberlain, who is the top person in the Queen's household, he broke his wand and laid it on her coffin to signify an end of service to her. It was very dramatic, very ritual-filled ceremony. The Queen, you know, she wanted to be buried here because Windsor is very dear to her. She grew up riding horses on the grounds. As a teenager, she spent World War II here away from the London Blitz. And during her long reign, she spent weekends here at Windsor. It was a place of relaxation and family, and it was said to be her favorite residence. Hmm. So uh, there was this final procession to the castle itself, the long walk, um, and this was the last public event before she was interred. You got to talk to people who were out there to see it. What were they telling you? Absolutely. We were out there. It was just an amazing scene, just tens of thousands of people. People said they would have never missed it. it. It's a unique moment in history. I spoke to one of them, Carrie Jane Lowry, and here's what she told me. I feel quite emotional, actually. I went to see the Queen yesterday lying in state. It was really quite moving. But this somehow is even more moving because she's coming home to be buried in uh, St. George's Chapel. So it's quite, uh, it's quite something. Hmm. Eleanor, speaking of quite something, for those of us following along on, on television, the amount of choreography, of planning that went into today was just remarkable. Talk to us a little bit more about the day and just what it all looked like. Yeah, absolutely. It really was, Mary Louise. You know, the Brits, they do pomp well, and they know it. Many people told me that. But they said today went beyond their expectations. Think about it. You take some of the most beautiful architecture in the world. You have cathedrals and castles. Add to that the traditions and pageantry of the British monarchy, of the military, of the soldiers of different regiments with their different uniforms and hats and kilts and colors. And, and the marching and the music, you had the medieval rituals on display, you had the jewels of the crown, the music in the church services was exalting. People were just stunned. They said they were very, very moved by it all. So after all the rituals and ceremony of today, now comes the hard work of what comes next. Um, what does come next? Britain, Britain now has a king. It does. Um, a lot of people said, well, that's exciting. We have a king. We haven't had a king in a long time. No one remembers a king. No one thinks he's going to be King Charles III will be on a par with his mother, but people know him and they have confidence in him, and they say he has risen to the challenge. I think people know in the back of their minds that there are troubles looming. There's an energy crisis, a slowing economy, questions over the monarchy. They know all that's coming, but today was really about being united and paying respects to their longest-serving monarch. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reporting for us today from Windsor in the UK. Thank you, Eleanor. Thank you, Mary Louise. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 518 and ahead on All Things Considered. Washington has released an Afghan drug lord in exchange for the freedom of a U.S. citizen held captive in Afghanistan for the past two and a half years. In business news, gas prices continue to fall in Massachusetts. AAA says a gallon of gas will cost you 
$3.68. That is down 12 cents from last week and equal to the national average. On Wall Street, stocks closed higher. The Dow ended the day at 31,019, up 197 points. The Nasdaq closed up 86 points at 11,535. The S&P 500 closed at 38.99, up 26 points. Marketplace has business news at 6.30 here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Harvard Business Review's podcast, Women at Work. Join them for a live show on Thursday the 22nd in Boston, bit.ly slash womenatworklive. And Prompt.com, with a mission to help students stand out on their college applications and get into their top colleges through one-on-one application and essay coaching. More at Prompt.com. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. It is 63 degrees in Boston, some showers and thunderstorms likely tonight with temperatures in the low 60s. A mostly cloudy Tuesday, a chance of showers tomorrow and highs in the mid-60s on Wednesday and Thursday. You can expect partly sunny skies and highs in the low 70s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Today, the U.S. announced the release of a jailed Afghan drug lord in exchange for the Taliban granting freedom to Mark Frerichs. He's an American citizen who's been held captive in Afghanistan for the past two and a half years. Frerichs' well-being has been a matter of special concern ever since the Taliban took over Afghanistan more than a year ago. This is the most recent in a series of high-profile U.S. prisoner swaps. Michelle Kellerman joins us now from New York to tell us more. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Juana. So, Michelle, let's dig into what happened today. Who is Mark Frerichs and who is the Afghan drug lord that the U.S. released in exchange for him? So Frerichs is a a 60-year-old Navy veteran and engineer. He was working as a contractor in Afghanistan, and he was detained back in January of 2020. Um, That was a time, by the way, when the Trump administration was negotiating a deal with the Taliban, um, and he was held throughout the whole U.S. withdrawal from the country. So getting him out now was a big deal for the U.S. He was exchanged for a man named Bashir Norzai, who's been in U.S. custody for the past 17 years. Nurzai was convicted of heroin trafficking. Prosecutors said he had a global drug network that supported the Taliban. And officials said it became clear in their negotiations with the Taliban that trading him was really the only way to get Frerichs home. So President Biden granted Nurzai clemency. What do we know about where Mark Frerichs is now and what have you been hearing from his family? Well, we know he was taken to Qatar, where he met with the U.S. envoy for hostage affairs. Um, But U.S. officials aren't saying a whole lot more about his travel plans beyond that. They say 
his health was stable and that he was um, being offered whatever kind of support he needs. His sister put out a statement saying that she's glad he's safe. She says her family never gave up hope that he would survive this and come home safely. There were also statements from the two senators in his home state of Illinois, Tammy Duckworth and Dick Durbin, welcoming his release. They've both been advocating for this for a long time now. Michelle, I imagine for some who are watching this development, it raises questions about what's possible for other Americans who have been held captive, like Brittany Greiner, who's imprisoned in Russia. Yeah, you know, Juana, the Biden administration actually released a Russian drug trafficker in exchange for a former Marine, Trevor Reed, earlier this year. And they're talking about exchanging a major Russian arms dealer for Greiner and for another former Marine, Paul Whelan. Um, The Russians kind of say they're ready for those talks, but they blame the U.S. Embassy for a stalemate. The State Department says that the U.S. has made a significant offer and they followed up repeatedly. Um, The Russians should take the deal on the table, one official told me today. Um, But one problem in all of this is how do you deter countries like Russia, like others, from doing this again and again? If you keep swapping prisoners, does that, you know, make it more enticing to pick up Americans abroad? That's a danger and something that the State Department's having to deal with. That's NPR's Michelle Kellerman speaking with us from New York. Michelle, thank you. Thank you. So far, the war in Ukraine has seen a couple recurring themes with major consequences, Russian mistakes and Ukrainian ingenuity. Ukraine's successful military offensive is the latest example of how it's made the most of its lesser resources and capitalized on Russian blunders. Here's NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie. Ukraine keeps laying deadly traps for the Russian military, and the Russians keep biting. When Ukraine started talking about an offensive in the southern part of the country, Russia moved troops there, pulling them out of the east. Ukraine then swooped in and captured a large chunk of territory in the east where Russian troops had just thinned out. How in the world did the Russians not detect the buildup of Ukrainian forces? Ben Hodges is a retired U.S. lieutenant general who helped train the Ukrainians a few years ago. I mean, the Russians have satellites. The Russians have really top quality electronic warfare capability. That tells you that their processes are are not very good. Kelly Greco is at the Stimson Center in Washington. She says this recent example points to the broader systemic Russian failures. The Russians have been touting their modernization. These flashy objects they show us and we think, wow, they're really you know, improving their capability. And it's been less than meets the eye. What we've discovered is there's actually a lot of problems and bugs. And the Ukrainians, she adds, keep outsmarting the Russians. At the start of the war, Russia was expected to quickly establish air superiority with its much larger, more modern air force. But Ukraine foiled the Russians, largely with old Soviet air defense systems on the ground. They're able to use something called shoot and scoot tactics, meaning that they turn on their radar, fire it at an aircraft, and then they're packing up really quickly and getting out of the area. So that by the time the Russians respond and maybe shoot a missile back, they're a fleeting target. They've already moved away. Ukraine says it shot down more than 200 Russian planes and helicopters, which have largely stopped flying over Ukraine, Greco says. As a result, the Russians have never had the ability to use the skies and fly freely. To protect itself, the Russian Air Force now fires mostly long-range missiles from beyond Ukraine's borders. But Ukraine has a plan for that as well. 
it's built wooden decoys of its high-value targets. This has fooled the Russians into firing valuable missiles at these worthless props. Again, Ben Hodges. So you're launching multi-million dollar cruise missiles at wooden targets that are decoys. This sort of agility and innovation, the MacGyver sort of stuff that they do, I think this has contributed to where we are now. Hodges visited Ukraine's sprawling capital, Kyiv, just before Russia invaded in February. He was shocked when Russia then tried to seize the capital in a matter of days. You couldn't capture Kyiv in three days if there were no Ukrainian soldiers there. I mean, it is a very complex urban environment, one of the biggest rivers in Europe. What I failed to appreciate is how the Russians would be so unprepared to actually fight. After a month, the Russians gave up and retreated from the outskirts of the capital. The Ukrainians are getting valuable U.S. intelligence and weapons, like Javelin missiles, which a single soldier can use to ambush a Russian tank. But what's a Ukrainian soldier to do if he's in the heat of battle and his Javelin isn't working? Joanne Bass, the chief master sergeant of the U.S. Air Force, says the answer is simple. He makes a long-distance call to the American National Guardsmen in Washington state who originally instructed him. This young Ukrainian soldier uses the power of their telephone, and they reach out to somebody who they formerly trained with. The results came quickly. And within 30 minutes, figured out how to troubleshoot. And then I think, you know, another few minutes goes by, and that guardsman gets a picture of that tank that was, of course, destroyed. It just shows the innovative spirit. A spirit that's serving Ukraine well. Greg Myrie, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 529, and coming up on All Things Considered, you'll get the story on a conviction overturned in the case that launched the serial podcast. Also, you'll hear about talks on reviving the nuclear deal with Iran and world powers that seem to be hitting a rough patch. If you happened to miss Here and Now today, then we've got you covered. The new Here and Now Anytime podcast is the news you need to know today and the stories that will stick with you tomorrow, all in about 20 minutes. Download wherever you get your podcasts. It's 63 degrees in Boston with some showers and thunderstorms likely tonight. A mostly cloudy Tuesday, a chance of showers tomorrow, and highs in the mid-60s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. High blood pressure is an illness that affects millions of Americans. But simple breathing exercises show promising signs of reducing blood pressure. It was a surprise that something as simple could be so profound in terms of its impact. How strength training for our breathing muscles offers a new tool to prevent the condition. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. 
Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Afghanistan after a more than two-year hostage ordeal in exchange, the U.S. released a convicted drug trafficker linked to the Taliban, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman tells us. U.S. officials say Mark Frerichs is in stable health, traveling with the U.S. presidential envoy on hostage affairs. His sister says he's happy her brother is safe. The 60-year-old Navy veteran was detained in January 2020 and was believed to have been held by the Haqqani Network. President Biden says Frerichs' freedom required difficult decisions, which he says he did not take lightly. Biden granted clemency to Bashir Norzai, who spent 17 years in U.S. custody on drug trafficking charges. Biden says he's made it a priority to get wrongfully detained Americans home. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the United Nations. In Germany, inflation could reach into the double digits in the coming months, and the central bank there says the German economy is on track for a recession next year. This comes as Russia cuts gas supplies to Germany and much of the EU amid its ongoing war with Ukraine. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports from Berlin. The Bundesbank said unfavorable developments in the gas market would put pressure on German manufacturers with signs of an impending recession inside Europe's largest economy becoming hard to ignore. As Russia cuts gas deliveries to Germany, the country is scrambling to replace natural gas and paying extra to import both gas and coal from outside of Europe. Bank economists predict that Germany's GDP will decline in the final quarter of this year and the first quarter of 2023. NPR's Rob Schmitz, much like the U.S., Germany's inflation rate was nearly 8 percent last month. Germany's central bank is worried that actions by the Fed and other central banks might overshoot their policy targets, triggering a recession next year. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A judge has dismissed a lawsuit brought by Massachusetts correctional officers who object to COVID vaccine mandates as a condition of employment. Plaintiffs initially sought to block enforcement of the mandates last year and failed. Federal Judge Timothy Hillman dismissed the case today. He writes, there is no constitutional right to refuse a vaccine. The MBTA promises the Orange Line trains will soon be running faster now that the line's 30-day maintenance shutdown is over. Transit advocates say the T has taken steps towards achieving a more important goal over the past month. Mella Bush-Miles of the T Riders Union tells Radio Boston that Orange Line riders are happy at the prospect of a quicker commute, but says something else matters more. The safe T. So uh, that's what a major concern is because we've had a history of unsafe conditions. Weeks before the shutdown, an Orange Line train carrying passengers caught fire. Bush Miles says the team must keep working to improve safety across the entire system. Far-right organizer Christopher Hood is representing himself in a court case over a fight at a protest. He's accused of clashing with counter-demonstrators when his group, NSC-131, picketed a drag queen story hour in Jamaica Plain in July. The Anti-Defamation League says NSC-131 is a neo-Nazi group based in New England. Today, Hood told a judge about his plans to represent himself. He is due back in court in October. 
A Haverhill-based car dealership is facing charges that employees discriminated against Hispanic and black customers. A lawsuit filed by the state attorney general's office accuses Jafarian of charging some customers hundreds of dollars more for add-on car products than it did for white customers. Through an attorney, Jafarian denied all allegations, saying the company takes a strong stance against discrimination. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by L3 Harris Technologies. You can speak with industry leaders and help boost your career with L3 Harris this Thursday from 11 to 4 at the Burlington Marriott. It is 63 degrees in Boston tonight, some showers and thunderstorms likely, and tomorrow a mostly cloudy Tuesday, a chance of some showers with temperatures in the mid-60s. Wednesday and Thursday, you can expect partly sunny skies, highs in the low 70s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Clavio, seeking to help e-commerce brands build customer relationships and drive revenue through email and SMS. Learn more at klaviyo.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. With the death of Queen Elizabeth II, Britons are getting used to life without the only monarch most have ever known. And so are members of the Commonwealth. It's a group of 56 nations connected in part by a history of British colonial rule. Lisa Hanna is a member of parliament in Jamaica. It's part of the Commonwealth, and it's also one of 14 nations that still recognize the British monarch as their head of state. I spoke with Lisa Hanna earlier today, and I asked her to describe the mood in Jamaica. I think the mood leading up to, certainly after the Queen's death, was somewhat militant because of the monarchy, and Jamaicans have been for some time now very... I I think resentful is a strong word, but certainly want to be architects of their own destiny. And they have not seen how having the Queen as a head of state has really moved our economy and our social standing forward. As a matter of fact, Jamaicans don't get automatic visas to go to England. Mm. And there's still a lot of vestiges from the influence of slavery that Jamaicans still live I think, you know, people are reserved and respectful. Someone has died, but certainly there is very little reverence from the position of what she held. What do you think can be done immediately or what would you like to see happen now? Well, the first thing that they can do is say sorry, a genuine sorry, you know, saying that it was a bad period and it was a heinous period of history is not the same as saying sorry and we take responsibility for that. And as a result of that, here is what we are prepared to do. They must now align themselves, urgently align themselves to um, correct their historical wrongs and, and reset their political, economic and social systems for the future generations that are coming. In the Caribbean, not only Jamaica, and you saw it with now Princess Kate and Prince William came To the Caribbean, how they were met, people were saying these signs and symbols of the monarchy, we no longer have the tolerance for the signs and symbols we want to be heard. Because if you read the history, the United Kingdom achieved maximum 
wealth creation, from the wealth extraction from Caribbean colonies. And even after slavery, reparations was not paid to slaves. It was paid to plantation owners. You can't, after years and hundreds of years of a system, expect that all of a sudden people, thousands of people, can move forward that way if you still are an oppressive system over them. Antigua has now come out and said that they want their own head of state. Jamaica is moving to do it. Barbados has moved to do it. There are quite a few countries around the world that are saying, look, this hasn't helped us. We're moving in another direction. Earlier, you mentioned the tour of the Caribbean that the Prince and Princess of Wales took. And during that trip, Prince William expressed, and I'm quoting here, profound sorrow for what he called the appalling atrocity of slavery. Uh, what was your reaction upon hearing that? Um, listen, flowy rewards and artful symbols not only do not placate us, but words without actions also offended us. So we need the Prince of Wales and King Charles and the new Prime Minister of Britain, Prime Minister Truss, to recognize certainly the historic exploitation and the consequences and now start making amends. We all heard what Prince William said, but it was not enough. He needed to go a step further to say, well, this is what we are going to do to make sure that we right those historical wrongs. And I think he has a unique opportunity to align our expectations based on what their actions will do for the future. Lisa Hanna is a member of Jamaica's parliament. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Sure, no problem. Take care. Be safe. In a Baltimore courtroom, a judge has ruled that after 22 years in prison, Adnan Syed is going home today. Back in 2000, Syed was convicted of murdering his former girlfriend, Heyman Lee, the previous year when he was 17 years old. This afternoon, that conviction was overturned. NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Tsioukas joins us to discuss this latest turn of events more than two decades after Heyman Lee's death. Hey, Anastasia. Hi there, Mary Louise. So fair to say this case came to a lot of people's attention, came to international attention after it became the subject of the podcast Serial, the first season of Serial, uh, which at the time we should know it was produced by This American Life and NPR member station WBEZ. The show, its production company are now owned by The New York Times. But this, this podcast was huge back in 2014. That's right. It was downloaded more than 175 million times. So millions of people around the world became armchair detectives. And Cyril set off a huge appetite for true crime podcasts. But really, Mary Louise, what of course is important is finding justice for a murdered 18-year-old woman and ensuring that the right person or people are convicted. All right, which leads us back to what played out in today's court hearing, which was triggered by what? Well, last week, prosecutors asked for Syed's conviction to be overturned. They made it clear they're not saying that Syed is innocent, but they lack con- confidence, quote, in the integrity of the conviction. So after Judge Melissa Finn's decision today, the state's attorney for Baltimore City, Marilyn Mosby, had this to say. I will remain committed to ensuring and pursuing justice 
and equality for all under the law, which includes victims, witnesses, accusers, and the accused. And prosecutors say that when Syed stood trial, their predecessors ignored two other possible suspects. The prosecutors have noted that these other suspects have a history of violent attacks on women, including after Syed was incarcerated. And for more than two decades, Adnan Syed has maintained his innocence. Judge Finn ruled today that Syed deserves a new trial, and that in the meantime, he can go home. Just an incredible twist after all this time. What about something else that people who've studied this case closely have noted, which is that back during the trial and the sentencing, prosecutors appeared to emphasize the fact that Syed is of Pakistani descent, that he comes from a Muslim family? Right. One of the prosecutors during the trial argued that the Pakistani American and the Muslim American communities were ready to actually abet Adan Syed if he were Pakistan before sentencing. And I should note, years later, critics also say that within the Serial podcast, host Sarah Koenig made an overt point of discounting the possibility of racism, including when she interviewed Syed's mother, Shamim. So let's take a listen. And everybody feel the whole community because it was a Muslim child. That's why they took him. It was easy for them to take him than the other people. The notion that the cops and prosecutors in this case were driven by anti-Muslim feeling, by racism, and by racism alone, that I found very hard to believe. And I still don't believe that, by the way. We have been speaking with NPR's Anastasia Tsiolkos about this latest twist in the case of Anad Sayed. Again, in a Baltimore courtroom today, a judge ruled that that conviction be overturned. Anastasia, thank you. Thanks for having me. This is NPR. Talks to revive the 2015 Iran nuclear agreement with world powers have had an up and down year, and currently they're stalled. NPR's Peter Kenyon has more on what is holding things up. The goal, to get the United States back into the deal and providing sanctions relief to Iran in return for Iran restoring previously agreed limits on its nuclear program, is something all sides, including both Iran and the U.S., have said they agree on. And yet months of diplomacy have yet to get it done and America's top diplomat doesn't see it happening soon. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, speaking last week, said Iran's rejection of the latest proposal suggests Tehran is unwilling or unable to reach an agreement. What we've seen over the last week or so in Iran's response to the proposal put forward by the uh, European Union is clearly a step backward and makes prospects for an agreement in the near term, I would say, unlikely. One key problem, Western negotiators say, is Tehran's unwillingness to explain traces of nuclear material found at sites Iran had never declared to the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency. Analyst Sanam Vakil at the London-based Chatham House think tank says after a flurry of diplomatic activity, with each side making proposals and offering responses, the talks are once again looking quite stagnant, and those unexplained nuclear traces are a big reason why. Iran is insisting on a timeline to resolve their lack of response and compliance with the IAEA, uh, the particles that have been found, and is holding any progress on the nuclear agreement 
hostage to a resolution with the IAEA. Iran's foreign ministry spokesman Nasser Kanani emphasized that demand in a recent news conference. He said Tehran must not only receive guarantees that it will benefit economically from the restoration of the deal, but also insists that the questions about nuclear traces at undeclared sites has to be dropped. The other issue is the nuclear issue and banning the IAEA from political behavior and games. Political accusations in Iran's relations with the IAEA should not cause disruptions in the implementation process of the agreement. In addition, the Iranian negotiators are continuing to seek stronger guarantees that another U.S. president won't suddenly walk away from the deal, as then-President Donald Trump did in 2018, when he reimposed sanctions that the deal had lifted and added new ones. Critics, including U.S. ally Israel, say the agreement isn't tough enough on Tehran, doesn't last long enough, and should not be revived. Analyst Sanam Vakil says domestic U.S. politics is also playing a role. She says Iran would be less inclined to return to the nuclear agreement if the Republicans have a strong showing in the November midterm elections, while a strong showing by the Democrats could strengthen support for the deal. Should the Democrats win, that would give a big boost to President Biden, and that would suggest that the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear agreement as it's known, um, could be more sustainable. On the other hand, should Donald Trump run in 2024 and win, analysts say the future of the deal and perhaps nuclear diplomacy in general could be very much in jeopardy. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 548 and ahead on All Things Considered. Photographer Penny Wollen discusses her new book, Guest Register, a book of photos from her stay at a residential hotel in Hollywood in the 1970s. That and more coming up on All Things Considered. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi. WBUR's fall fundraiser begins Thursday morning at 7 with just an hour of fundraising for the entire day. We call it a power hour. Squeezing a whole day of fundraising into an hour gives you more of your favorite programs. We need 500 contributions by Thursday morning at 8 o'clock to make this power hour a success. Help us off to a strong start. Give now at WBUR.org. Coming to WBUR City Space Thursday, September 29th at 7 p.m., a performance by Alston-based band Lady Pills. That's part of the Sound On concert series. For tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. 63 degrees in Boston. Showers and thunderstorms likely tonight. Clouds around tomorrow, a chance of showers and highs in the mid-60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. Do animals 
trust each other. Other animals like chimpanzees, they manage to form trusting relationships in fairly small groups. Humans are different. What's the amazing thing about humans for me is that we can create trust among strangers. It's part one of our special series, Essential Trust. What trust is, why we need it, and what happens when it's lost. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. When she was 21 years old, Penny Wolin checked into a single-room occupancy residential hotel in the heart of Hollywood. The year was 1975, and the hotel was the St. Francis Hotel. It sat on Hollywood Boulevard, the same strip where movie legends have long immortalized their hand and footprints in wet cement. The St. Francis was built in 1926, during the heyday of silent films, a place abuzz with the glitz and glamour of old Hollywood. But half a century later, when Wolin arrived, the St. Francis was a very different place. Its rooms were filled with people who felt like they didn't quite fit anywhere else. People whose dreams, as she put it, were bigger than their rooms. Wolin got out a camera and single-strobe light and a tape recorder. And for the next three weeks of her time there, she strove to connect with the people who formed the community at the St. Francis one by one. And how did she talk people into sitting in front of her camera? Well, she just asked. My name is Penny Wolin, and I'm a photographer, and I'm working on a documentary project, and I want to photograph the people that are staying at the hotel. (laughs) Would you let me come to your room and photograph you? And now she has compiled those photos in a new book called Guest Register. Penny Wolin joins us now. Welcome. It's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to have you in person. 50 years later. Exactly. I want to start at the beginning. What first led you to check into a pay-by-the-week residential hotel on Hollywood Boulevard back in 1975? Well, I grew up in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and I can remember when I would go to that part of town that had these kinds of buildings with my father, he would always hold my hand a little tighter, and and I wondered who lives in these buildings. And who might find themselves living at a place like the St. Francis back in the 70s? Well, I think it was people that needed a place to be, whether they were on their way up or or, or maybe on their way down. Well, let's take a tour of the community that you met there. Can we first talk about Sweet William? This is room 309. Sweet William had a girlfriend down the hallway. As you were taking his photo, he was giving you some good life lessons, and you recorded that conversation with your tape recorder. Every walk of life has its ups and downs, and... It's cooks and it's turns. What was he talking about? You know, the path of life um, and what he had been through and how he still had emerged really intact and with a positive attitude. The photograph shows a man who's, who's actually well-dressed and uh, good-looking. And I met him because I photographed his French-born girlfriend uh-huh. uh, in another room. They were both... Close to 80. Did they meet at the hotel or they came to the hotel together? No, they met at the hotel. And so they would spend their afternoons just being together. (laughs) That's so cool that there was this community where people really got to know each other. At least some people did. Well, that's right. Now, mind you, people stayed there either for the night or 30 years and anywhere in between. 
What about room 323? This was a plumber electrician who loved to wear lace. When I was in school, instead of going out and playing boys games, I, I, I learned how to sew. I give them the girls' classes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they'd make fun of me and tease me. But I wanted to learn it. Sure. Yeah, I got in sewing class. Yeah, and so now you can sew and you can also uh, do electrical work and stuff like that. What about this person first captivated you? I would see this fellow that would leave in the morning, and he was a muscular plumber. Mm -hmm. And then he would come back at the end of the day and go to his room, and then another kind of person would emerge, which was a a beautiful woman in a lace dress and high heels, and Mm -hmm. it was him. And he would leave. As my my caption says, he was well-liked and respected by everyone that gets to know him. So I wanted to get to know him. (laughs) What about the Orphan Brothers from Nebraska? This is room 421. What do you do at the bookstore? I sit behind the counter and clerk. At the bookstore? I'm lucky if I sell a magazine. All day. All day, right. Who were these brothers? They came from Nebraska. They were orphaned and together since ages three and five. Wow. And now they're out looking around together. Still together. Like they're still together, which just warmed my heart. And they were just these great guys from Nebraska that said, let's go to Hollywood. (laughs) and See what happens. (laughs) That's right. So what is the myth of Hollywood, if you could encapsulate it? Because in some ways, these people were drawn to Hollywood because of the myth, yeah? Well, I think the myth of Hollywood, which still is alive and well, Mm -hmm. and I think true, is that you can go to Hollywood as an existential place, not necessarily just geographic, but as an existential location, and you can make something for yourself. You can become a photographer. Uh, a musician, all these things that you want to be, there's hope that you can be them. So Hollywood is built on hope. And the reality that you saw at the St. Francis, was there any part of that reality that made that myth ring false sometimes? Well, of course, there were people there that that weren't doing so well, that, that maybe, you know, they had too much to drink. Alcohol at the time was the, the, the drug that was kind of the, you know, the misstep for people. Mm-hmm. But more I see, what I see in these people is that they were pursuing their dreams or they had pursued their dreams and they had succeeded. And success is not a linear and constant road up. Exactly. And so I saw them. I saw the brothers, the orphan brothers. Um, they left Nebraska. Yay! Yeah. So, as I say, I, I believed in success, theirs and mine. I love that. The man in room 540, he wrote you a note. There was a photo of it in this book where he said, quote, There is a room here for you, too. What does that statement mean to you now? For many years, that statement really kept my sanity together. Mm. It, It became the mantra that no matter how bad things can be in the journey of finding your path, succeeding, dropping down, doing well, no, no matter, no matter what that journey is, if this is as bad as it gets, It's not so bad. Hmm. So 
if there was room here for me at at the existential hotel, well, then I have a place to be in the world, and people will look after me. Photographer Penny Wollen's new book is called Guest Register. Thank you so much for coming in today and speaking with me. Well, thank you for having an interest in this interesting story. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It is 63 degrees in Boston, coming up on 6 o'clock as All Things Considered continues. Some showers and thunderstorms likely tonight. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy, a chance of showers and highs in the mid-60s. Wednesday and Thursday, partly sunny with highs reaching the low 70s. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A. IKU.com. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Today marked the state funeral for Queen Elizabeth II as mourners lined the streets of London and watched on TV. It's a historical moment in English history and uh, I didn't want to miss it. It is Monday, September 19th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. The race for an open U.S. Senate seat in Ohio has focused attention on abortion rights. Also, you'll hear from MBTA passengers now that the Orange Line and a section of the Green Line reopened today after a month-long shutdown. And a Boston-based duo wants to make you move. The first time I set my eyes on you, I'm like, yay, I slid in your DM, I was like, hey, took you three days to reply, it's the music of Super Smash Bros. It's 6.01. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A U.S. contractor has been freed from Afghanistan after a two-year ordeal. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports the U.S. released a convicted drug smuggler, a member of the Taliban, in exchange. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says it took a lot of hard work to win the release of U.S. engineer and Navy veteran Mark Frerichs. Many national security professionals across the government gave their all to this effort to get Mark out of captivity and ultimately to, uh, to bring him home. 
And Blinken says the Biden administration is committed to helping other Americans who are, in his words, arbitrarily detained or held hostage abroad. In exchange for Mark Frerichs, President Biden granted clemency to Bashir Norzai, who spent 17 years in U.S. custody, convicted of heroin smuggling. President Biden says it was a decision he did not take lightly. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the United Nations. Democratic lawmakers say they believe Florida Governor Ron DeSantis may have violated the law in sending planes carrying dozens of migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard last week. NPR's Greg Allen reports they want to freeze the fund that's paying for the flights. Democrats in the Florida House say Governor DeSantis exceeded his authority in tapping a fund that was set up to transport, quote, unauthorized aliens out of the state. State Representative Fintress Driscoll says that description doesn't necessarily apply to all of the nearly 50 migrants sent to Martha's Vineyard. By all the accounts that we've read uh, trying to track this story, these are folks who were legally seeking asylum and trying to go about immigration in the right way. DeSantis has vowed to use, quote, every penny of the $12 million fund approved by lawmakers to send unauthorized migrants to other states. Democratic lawmakers are asking Florida House leaders to stop the governor from using the money for future flights. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. Signs higher fuel prices started to bite a bit over the summer. New assessment shows travel on U.S. roads fell by 3.3 percent to 286 billion miles in July as drivers dealt with higher priced fuel. Stocks ended the day higher as NPR's David Gurra reports it was another volatile day of trading ahead of a critical Federal Reserve Board meeting that starts tomorrow. All three major indexes gained ground after a losing week. The S&P 500 up about seven-tenths of percent and the Nasdaq about eight-tenths. It's a waiting game for Wall Street. Economists expect that on Wednesday, the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates by three-quarters of a percentage point once again as the central bank tries to get inflation under control. Consumer price index for August led some to forecast the Fed might do more, hiking rates by a full percentage point. As Fed officials look at the data and deliberate, there's not much on the calendar for investors in terms of earnings reports or economic indicators. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The Dow was up 197 points today. The Nasdaq closed up 86 points. The S&P rose 26 points. This is NPR. The European Commission has proposed withholding more than $7 billion worth of funding to Hungary over that country's rule of law violations. NPR's Rob Smits has the story. The commission recommended suspending 7.5 billion euros in funding to Hungary in response to allegations of corruption and rule of law violations against the government led by Viktor Orban. If the majority of EU member states back the proposal, the move will impact Hungary's so-called cohesion funds, intended to help bring the economies and infrastructure of EU member states up to the bloc's standards. The EU has long accused the conservative government of Viktor Orban of undermining democracy by restricting judicial independence and shutting down the country's free press, among other actions that are contributing to what members of the European Parliament call Hungary's slide into authoritarianism. Hungary has until November 19th to address the EU's concerns. Rob Schmitz, NPR News. Berlin. German automaker Volkswagen has set a price range for its multi-billion dollar euro sale of a minority stake in its sports car brand Porsche. The company says it continues to prepare the IPO, the proceeds of which will go to fund VW's investment in new technology, including electric cars, software and services. Volkswagen expects the IPO to raise up to $9.4 billion, valuing Porsche at upwards of $78 billion. VW selling 25% of Porsche's preferred shares or about 12.5% of the entire company to investors in the offering. 
Crude oil futures prices moved slightly higher today. Oil up 62 cents a barrel to settle at 85.73 a barrel in New York. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. There is a confirmed case of monkeypox in the Boston public school system. WBUR's Carrie Young reports the infected person has been identified only as an adult member of the school community. District officials didn't specify which school was impacted or whether the patient was a staff member. That person is isolating at home, and Mayor Michelle Wu says the Boston Public Health Commission is monitoring the situation closely. There was limited exposure, and out of an abundance of precaution, vaccines have been uh, administered and are distributed to anyone who might have even been a little bit in contact there. The impacted school has been cleaned and disinfected. According to the Boston Public Health Commission, monkeypox spreads mostly through close, sustained contact. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. A Winthrop woman is facing charges in connection with the racist harassment of her neighbors. Angela Foley was arraigned today and pleaded not guilty. She is accused of shouting slurs and setting up a homemade device designed to puncture one of her neighbor's tires. Today, a judge released her on personal recognizance and ordered her to stay away from the victims. Suffolk District Attorney Kevin Hayden says the case in Winthrop marks an example of why his office has created a civil rights unit. Any of these hate-based related crimes have to they tear at the very fabric of our society. Those of us who believe in fair, equitable uh, communities uh, can't, can't stand for it. It must be condemned, um, and that's part of why we're doing what we're doing. Hayden says the new unit has received only a few hate-related cases so far. The south coast of Massachusetts has nearly 5,000 acres of salt marshes. They filter water, offer wildlife habitat, and act as a storm buffer to the communities behind them. But a new report from a Massachusetts environmental nonprofit says they are disappearing more quickly than other coastal marshes in the state. WBUR's Barbara Moran has the story. The salt marshes on the south coast tend to be smaller than others in the state, and they're disappearing quicker as sea levels rise. And years of draining the marshes for mosquito control and farming have compressed the soil, so they're also sinking. Cynthia Dittbrenner is Director of Coast and Natural Resources for the Trustees of Reservations. So at a time when we really want the marsh to be doing its natural thing of building sediment and building organic matter and getting higher to keep up with sea level rise, it's actually sinking. The report predicts that 23% of the salt marsh on the south coast will vanish by 2050. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. The Republican nominee for Massachusetts governor, Jeff Deal, now says he will not challenge election results in any way other than through the official legal process. That's after his campaign refused to comment when the New York Times asked whether Deal would accept the results of the gubernatorial election. In a new statement, Deal does say he's worried a state law to allow undocumented immigrants to get driver's licenses could make it easier for non-citizens to vote illegally. However, that law would not go into effect until after November's election. Deal says it is ridiculous to ask any candidate to waive the right to challenge an election that has not happened yet. In the forecast, showers and thunderstorms likely tonight. Tomorrow, a chance of showers, highs in the mid-60s.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The coffin of Queen Elizabeth II, who inherited the British throne in 1952, was lowered into its final resting place today. Before that, a state funeral, the culmination of 10 days of mourning since the Queen's death on September 8th. Let us give thanks to God for Queen Elizabeth's long life and reign, recalling with gratitude her gifts of wisdom, diligence, and service. Reverend Ian Greenshields, moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, one of the speakers this morning at a ceremony at Westminster Abbey. Then thousands upon thousands of people lined the streets for a long procession through and out of London. After that, a smaller service filled with royal rituals at St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle. Today, everyday Britons reacted to the Queen's funeral. It is just nice to see it, to see how many people it impacts. And I think it gives a bit of closure for everyone. I'm really shocked at how, how emotional I felt. I just didn't expect that at all, you know. I don't know if it's because you've been waiting so long for it to happen or maybe because you've seen it so much on the media and then when you actually kind of see it in real life, it's just surreal, almost. I'm quite speechless just coming out. It was just the emotion hits you. And I knew exactly what I wanted to do, got to the middle of the coffin and then just bowed my head. And I just said, thank you. It's kind of a once in a lifetime thing. She's a queen, always been our queen and going to be our only queen because it'll be kings after that. So I felt it was a privilege to come. That was Megan Montgomery, Debbie Harvey, Keith Simpson and Beverly Robinson. In the final public ceremony, King Charles, the royal family, clergy members, and others in attendance concluded in song, God Save the King. NPR's London correspondent Frank Langfitt joins us now. Hi, Frank. Hi, Wana. So, Frank, what has the atmosphere been like in London? I mean, it's definitely been sad, but I also think a lot of people came down for a sense of history, and they just wanted to see this for themselves and, and maybe in some cases to say goodbye. Uh, people were gathering hours along the route uh, around Buckingham Palace and even Hyde Park. A woman named Wendy Preeti, she was in Hyde Park, sitting on a Union flag, watching the funeral on a giant screen, and this is what she had to say. I love the Queen, and I just think no one does pomp and ceremony like the British, and it's just been absolutely wonderful, and I wanted to experience it here with everybody else. And Frank, what else have you been hearing from people? Well, you know, there are also a lot of, got to remember, this is a very big city and there are a lot of people who are not watching it. They're not coming out to see it. And today was a bank holiday, so people simply took advantage of that. It's a guy named Max Lehman. He's a teacher in his mid-20s here in London, and he was also in Hyde Park. 
but he was actually sitting behind the giant screens that were showing the funeral. He wasn't even watching it, and he was having a picnic with some friends here in London and out of town. And uh, he said he just wasn't that interested. This is how he put it. I'm not a massive royalist and had this picnic planned with my lovely Australian friends and George. So I was planning stuff for this instead of watching that because I know it sounds really brutal, but it's honest. Um, hasn't really and isn't probably going to affect my future. And I, I'm going to give you another example, Juana, because I think everyone I talk to respects the Queen, but they have different approaches to the monarchy for sure. And I can think of two friends. One is lives near my neighborhood. He's a white man, a patriotic. He went out and stood for 13 hours in line to see the Queen's coffin in the Houses of Parliament. Another is a woman that I know who's originally from India and when I was looking on Facebook, saw that she was in Greece just taking advantage of the bank holiday and posting photos of eating on the beach. And I said, not here for this. And she wrote, I'm from the colonies. Okay. So, Frank, I understand the Queen's coffin will be placed in the royal vault. What else do we know about her final resting place at Windsor Castle? Well, her final resting place will be with Prince Philip, her husband, uh, who died last year. And she'll be in the same chapel with her father, King George VI, and her mother and sister. And so, in a way... All these years later, that family, that original royal family, will be united um, in St. George's Chapel uh, in Windsor Castle. Today's state funeral in Westminster Abbey drew dignitaries from around the world. The royal family was there. Can you tell us a bit more about the service? Sure. It was a, it was very much an Anglican a Church of England service. There was a lot of hymns, a lot of readings. One of them was made by the new prime minister, Liz Truss. And I want to mention that, you know, she's the 15th prime minister to work, albeit very briefly, with this queen, the first prime minister, of course, being Winston Churchill. And Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, he did give a sermon. A couple of things were interesting there, Juana. He focused not only on her service, the queen's service to the people, which is kind of a hallmark of her reign, but also talked about King Charles III following in his mother's kind of footsteps and with that great emphasis. And I, I read into that a desire to try to kind of connect him to her legacy. And what comes next for King Charles now that he has acceded to the throne? Well, I can't say exactly right now, but there will be a coronation and it'll be next year. And I think that will be the next big event. But I also think that he faces a challenge. He's, you know, a lot less popular than his mother and less popular than the monarchy. So he has his work cut out for him. If you talk to a lot of young people here and you look at polls, they're 50-50 on the monarchy. Mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of whether they think it should remain or whether they should keep it going. And that's a challenge of the institution over time. That was NPR's London correspondent, Frank Langfitt. Frank, thank you. Great to talk, Juana. Not long ago, Ohio was considered a swing state. These days, it is pretty red. President Trump won it by eight points in 2020, and he went there this weekend to stump for the Republican in Ohio's Senate race. The people of Ohio are going to vote to fire the radical left Democrats. You're going to send J.D. Vance to the U.S. Senate. That race is looking very close as Election Day approaches. And a big part of that is women voters, many of them energized by the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben has this report. Brittany Kester has undergone one hell of a political evolution. She voted for Trump in 2016, but soon soured on him and started staunchly supporting Democrats. That fervor has grown. This year, she says she's more politically active than ever, and it was the overturn of Roe that did it. I was like, we, we got to do something. Like, what are we going to do? And so I got involved uh, with 
certain you know campaigns or just really in general and I've been out twice knocking on doors and talking to people and reminding them to vote. Kester is a busy woman. She spoke to me from her car on the job as a rep for lighting manufacturers. She has also been volunteering with Red Wine and Blue, a group of suburban women supporting Democrats, in particular by engaging family and friends. Kester has been talking about reproductive rights to her family. When Tim Ryan came to town, I got my mom and my Republican dad to go. My dad hugged uh, Tim Ryan. My dad hugged him. And she says her dad will be voting for Ryan, the Democrat in Ohio's Senate race. Polls have shown a substantial gender gap with women favoring Ryan. Tom Bonnier is a Democratic strategist and CEO of polling and data firm TargetSmart. He has found that in several states, including Ohio, women's voter registration has spiked since the Dobbs decision. Ohio's fascinating because Before the Dobbs decision, men were actually out registering women by a very narrow margin. Since Dobbs, that's flipped entirely so that now women are out registering men by an 11-point margin. So about a 12-point flip, which puts Ohio among the top states of biggest gender gaps since the Dobbs decision. Bonnier says his modeling shows the surge to be disproportionately Democratic. David Cohen, professor of political science at Akron State University, says there are several reasons this race is close. For example, Republican candidate J.D. Vance is inexperienced and has been out-fundraised by Ryan. But, he adds, Dobbs is definitely playing a role. There is an energy there that is not normally there in a midterm election for the president's party. And, And Dobbs has been a real focusing event for Democrats. Vance mostly opposes abortion rights, but told NPR that he supports, quote, reasonable exceptions. Ryan, meanwhile, supports abortion rights, telling NPR that codifying Roe would be a good policy. That said, the economy is at the center of Ryan's campaign. Even when I asked him about abortion, he linked it to business concerns. We're trying to get young people to move here and talent to move here. To have medieval women's rights laws in the country, I think, is very detrimental to the economic well-being of the state as well. Katie Paris is founder of Red Wine and Blue, the group that Brittany Kester volunteers with. The women she talks to understand Ryan's focus on the economy over abortion rights. They know what they need to know. People also know that in Ohio, to win, you got to do what Sherrod Brown does, and that's do well everywhere. And that includes doing better than most Democrats have done lately in rural Ohio. It's true that reproductive rights aren't top of mind for all voters, including women. Polling has suggested women support abortion rights only modestly more than men, not overwhelmingly so. And that's what Vance is counting on. Women aren't single-issue voters, right? I mean, I think women care about a lot of things that men care about, which is security, inflation, crime, a whole other things on, a lot of other things on top of it. I spoke to Vance at the Morgan County Fair in southeastern Ohio. That's also where I met Lainala Porter, a 19-year-old waitress. I asked if she had heard much about J.D. Vance or Tim Ryan. Nope. (laughs) This will be her first election. She plans to vote, though she hasn't registered. I have not, not yet. She's a woman of few words, but one topic where she did have a lot to say is abortion. I'm pro-choice in a large way. It just doesn't seem very fair to make a woman pay for and have a child when she just isn't ready or if it can potentially kill her. And it's voters like her that could put Ryan over the top. New voters who aren't paying a lot of attention, but who do care about reproductive rights. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Sharon Brody, and for Lisa Mullins, the Orange Line and the northern part of the Green Line are back in service today after a month-long shutdown, and many riders are getting back into their normal routines. This morning, WBUR's Simone Rios was out talking to riders and singers. De pronto se una puerta. At least one Orange Line passenger was in good spirits this morning, inspired to sing a merengue before he got off at his stop. Another happy rider, Tom Dunn, was about to get on the line with his baby son, Henry. Hopefully the uh, the Orange Line will continue working as good as it did on a good day before, (laughs) is what I'm expecting. Henry, what do you think about the Orange Line? We've been telling everyone the Orange Line's broken, but now we can tell everyone that Orange Line, people fixed it, right? broken. <laughs> Tom corrected Henry to say the line is actually fixed. The unprecedented shutdown of the T allowed workers to complete what officials describe as five years of work in a single month. The T also shut down the Union Square branch of the Green Line for nearly a month until today. Leslie Good rides the Orange Line most weekdays, and she was dubious the T could fix the line so quickly. But on her first day back on the tee, she said things were going smoother than expected. I'm surprisingly relieved because I've, I have felt the past month really exhausting. You know, I'm young and healthy, but even taking three legs to get to work. And so by the time I get to work, I feel a little bit frazzled and it's always looming over me to get home. State officials listed all the work they accomplished over the course of the shutdown, including the addition of 72 new cars and 14,000 feet of rail. T-General Manager Steve Poftak acknowledged the closures were inconvenient, but he said he hopes riders like the results. The ride is going to be faster. You're going to get more vehicles. It's going to be a smoother, smoother, more reliable ride. So I'm hopeful to the extent that there are folks who have lost confidence in the T. I'm hopeful that this is, is a step in regaining that confidence. But the T has yet to win back everybody's confidence. One rider who got on at Assembly Square this morning told WBUR the wait times seem to be even worse than before the closure. The T is asking for patience. It says it's running trains more slowly than normal until the new tracks settle. Another fix involved replacing some of the yellow stripping that runs along the edge of the train platforms. Waiting for his train at the Mass Ave stop today was Frank McDonough, who's blind and walks with a cane. He says that yellow stripping is important for people who are visually impaired. Generally, yes. Why is that? So we don't fall off into the pit (laughs) when there's no train there. Now he and the rest of T-Riders will find out whether the month-long shutdown was worth it. And the T plans yet more shutdowns in weeks ahead. That includes three nine-day shutdowns of the Green Line's D-Branch starting Saturday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Sharon Brody. And coming up on All Things Considered, WBUR introduces you to the Boston-based duo Super Smash Bros. On Wall Street today, the Dow ended the day at 31,019, up 197 points. The Nasdaq closed up 86 points at 11,535. The S&P 500 closed at 3899, up 26 points. Marketplace 
has a full range of business news at 6.30. Coming to WBUR City Space, Tuesday, September 27th, a live taping of the podcast, No One is Coming to Save Us. Host Gloria Riviera explores the child care crisis. For free tickets, go to wbur.org slash events. It is 63 degrees in Boston with some showers and thunderstorms tonight. Temperatures in the low 60s, a mostly cloudy Tuesday, a chance of showers tomorrow and highs in the mid 60s. Looking ahead to Wednesday, partly sunny and temperatures in the low 70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals. Hybrid workplace strategy reports and more at mparchitectsboston.com. And Brookline Booksmith, presenting Pulitzer Prize winner Andrew Sean Greer and his new book, Less is Lost, Monday, September 26th, brooklinebooksmith.com. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Sharon Brody. Music is its own language. It connects us, and it can make us move as if we're under a spell. Baby, I know life when you want to Boston-based duo Super Smash Bros. understands the language and power of music. Today we profiled the group for our series that highlights artists of color in Boston. WBUR's Lauren Williams says the duo started off performing at family parties in the backyard. Muyi and Noma Okandaye want to make you dance. The pair hosts parties and DJ for events all over the country, but their love for sharing music with the world came from their dad. When they were kids, he would take them to Skippy White's Records, which used to be in Eggleston Square. You know, you could always buy those, like, super mixed CDs with a bunch of different songs on it. It was, like, always the most popping songs. And I still remember that's how I discovered it. If I was your man, baby, you never worry about what I do. I'd be coming home back to you. Mario, Let Me Love You. And I remember one specific CD was track two on it. That was like, yo, this song's, like, the greatest song ever. The brothers had music education in school, but their devotion to music came from spending time with family who immigrated from Nigeria. Noma says that whenever the song Lagos Night by Suku Stars would come on at a family party, everybody's legs was going (laughs) insane. That's the energy they want to bring to their work today. Whenever we step into an environment, we we always bring a new wave and a new energy into the environment. So... I would say that's something we definitely do like to look back on and be like, yeah, we had it lit. Like, we had that. We had a jump in. In June, they DJed for Mayor Wu's inauguration. It was a career highlight for them, but the Super Smash Bros are just getting started. The first time I set my eyes on you, I'm like, yay, I slid in your DM. Ten years from now, the two say they want to take their sound global, curating and headlining a festival in Nigeria. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lauren Williams. Our profile is part of our week-long series, The Makers, spotlighting local emerging artists of color. Tomorrow on WBUR's Morning Edition, we'll meet artist Nigel Jones. To see photos and videos of all the people we featured, visit WBUR.org. 
Next at 6.30 on WBUR, it's Marketplace. You'll hear about how supply shortages are affecting musical instruments. It is 63 degrees in Boston with some showers and thunderstorms tonight. Tomorrow, a mostly cloudy Tuesday, a chance of showers and highs in the mid-60s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. William James College Behavioral Health Service Corps, a service year for college graduates who want to earn and learn. Starts in January, williamjames.edu. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com.